Let's hear some of that movie chat. Credits roll by and I tip my hat. Credits roll by, wanna know more right away. Let's have some of that movie chat. Credits roll by, tell me who did that. Life in the credits is where I wanna play. Welcome to Life in the Credits. This is the show where we learn about entertainment by chatting with people who work in the industry. I'm Susan. And I'm Ben. And today we're discussing the film Hannaby, also known as Fireworks. And joining us today is our special guest, John Roberts. So welcome, John. Hey, John. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining yeah. us. We're very excited to talk to you mm. today. Can you tell us a bit about what you do in the entertainment world? Yeah, so I'm a picture editor um, and occasionally a producer. But my main career is as a picture editor, mostly in series. I have done a few features but really the bulk of my career is in series. Um, I've done everything from network to streaming. And one thing that's difficult to describe to people who maybe aren't familiar with the film business is yeah. exactly what happens in an editing room. Like yeah. not only is it not a reported on job all that much, you know, there's a hundred and some people on set standing around and it's very, you see what's going on, even if you don't understand all the parts. In the editing room, it's like you close the door and there's like four people and you have no idea what's going on in there. For <laughs> so part of what I hope we can do is demystify some of that stuff. Yes, Great. Definitely. Let's get into it. So what does the picture editor do specifically? Yeah. So, you know, when I'm trying to explain it to my family that has no idea what the movie is, <laughs> essentially it's like this. Everything that gets done on set, everything the camera department generates, sound department generates, and sort of the sum total of all the other pre-production and production comes into my room and my job is to look through every single frame of film and put it together initially maybe according to the script which is the movie everyone thought they were making right, right. to make it into the movie you're actually making which is based on what you have right and sometimes those things match and sometimes they don't um but the showrunner I'm working with right now loves that I say this phrase. I see people at their most disappointed. Um, <laughs> and that is part of the job, right? I mean, I could tell you in, you know, the technical details of it, but that stuff is kind of documented. I think a lot of it is helping everyone else involved in the production understand the difference between what everyone thought they were making before they started shooting and what we're actually making now that we have the film. And to get the most important intentions into the final show, the episode, the movie, the series, the whatever, right. even if some of the particulars didn't go exactly the way they wanted it to. And yeah, I mean, Ang Lee has a great analogy for this. And he talks about, if you think of movies as throwing a dinner party for your friends, look, it's really important that you buy the right ingredients. With mediocre ingredients, there's going to be a limit to the meal you can prepare, right? It's really important that the prep gets done right. Editorial is where you cook and you serve. It's, I've never come across a better, easier to understand analogy. Yeah. I mean, and it is like, sometimes there's a dish, you're like, this is not working out. We're not serving yeah. this. Like, it's just, no, it's terrible. Or this is like not the way I thought it would be. So we need more of this and less of that. And, oh, I thought this was going to be the centerpiece, but actually it's not going to be that. And then you take it out the table and nobody knows that all that stuff was going on in the kitchen, right? They just get it delivered. So, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because people often talk about editorial as being a minutia-driven job. You know, it's this frame, not that frame. I don't think of it that way. Like, to me, it's an exercise in how do you keep the perspective of the whole episode, movie, series yeah. in mind while you're moment-to-moment -moment changing things. Um, but I seem to be in the minority there. People on the outside looking in seem to think of it as a minutia job. <laughs> interesting. 
Yeah, I think it's really interesting to hear how much of the movie or show is written after it's filmed. Like, you have the script as like a guide. It's pretty much just a guide. And then you have all this footage. And now you're like, all right, now I figure out how to make it either match what's written or tell maybe a slightly different story or tell a completely different story. Right. So, yeah, that cooking analogy is really good. That's a really good way to put it. So can you tell us a little bit about specifically what projects have you worked on? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, if I went through all of them, it would be a boring litany. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, so some of the highlights, uh, I worked on Glee back mm-hmm. when uh, we thought we'd be on that for 12 weeks because nobody watches musicals and they would get canceled right away. Um, I've done other shows in between. I mean, last year was kind of amazing for me. I did the fourth season of In Treatment at HBO at the top of the year. Awesome. And then I got to do an episode of Star Trek Discovery. Um I did just one episode and right, it was like, I was like more like there as a super fan, but like a fan of <laughs> agency, right? Yeah. I'm not part of the, the master continuum of what's going on. So it was funny because I feel like, like when you're a kid and you just go over to someone else's house and play all their video games and then go home, that's what yeah. started. <laughs> um, and then I did two pilots. I did one for Amazon called The Horror of Dolores Roach. Okay. And I did a pilot for Hulu called Career Opportunities and Murder and Mayhem. <laughs> and they both got picked up. Awesome. So both of those will be coming out later in the year. Um, and I'm actually in, I think, five weeks going to Toronto for production on Dolores Roach. Awesome. Wonderful. Yeah. Have you worked in Toronto before? Are you, where are you based out of? Yeah. So, it, well, it's interesting because pre-COVID, it's like Los Angeles, right? During COVID, I've had enough flexibility that I can actually be part of the time in Los Angeles I've spent part of my time in Phoenix. Um, I've not worked in Toronto before. This will be my first time doing that. Um, I actually haven't been there since I was 14. But uh, I'll be there for 10 weeks. And then when we're done shooting, we'll go back to Los Angeles to finish the series. So what are the advantages of having an editor sort of, you know, not necessarily on set, but nearby versus having you back in home base, you know, where you're doing your work there? Yeah. So it's interesting because different shows, even before COVID, had different models, right? So for Glee, for example, they were shooting on the Paramount lot and we were in the offices right next to the stages. So if anything goes wrong, you just get up from your desk, walk across the alleyway, walk onto the stage and talk to the director. It was great. Like for years we did that, right? Or when they get a break, I could be like, can you come over during break and look at something? Because it might affect what you later today. On other shows, you know, lots of productions shoot in Canada and editorials often in Los Angeles um, or on Sleepy Hollow. They were shooting in North Carolina and I was in Burbank. Um, It's different. I mean, you know, now because everyone is so used to communicating over the Internet because of COVID, uh, the gap is a little smaller than it once was. Mm -hmm. But the advantage of being right there is you can see problems forming in real time. Hmm. So... Whatever production does on Monday, I get on Tuesday. There's about a 24-hour delay between what they shoot and the film that I get. So if I need to talk to the director about a problem, it's like, yeah, but we've already moved on from that. Especially when it's an episode that you're only shooting eight days as opposed to a movie you're shooting, you know, nine, ten weeks. Right. But when you're on set, you can walk over there. Um, And one of the things that's really exciting for me about Dolores is that the, the showrunners have invited me into the pre-production process. So I can be there from the beginning to, to speak to problems before they happen. That's awesome. Oh, nice. That's the concept anyway. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's really cool. That's fantastic. Um, so can you tell us 
the path you took career-wise to get to where you're at now? Yeah. So when I started out, um, I thought I wanted to be in camera department. Okay. And I worked on some indie movies, like at the bottom of the camera department, which is really fun. You're like shooting all night, and, like yeah. it was, you know, like all this stuff, like all the romance of like being on set when you're 19 and don't know anything. Like, <laughs> um, and it was really fun. But the further I went along, the more I realized that in editorial, I spent more of my time focused on nuances of character and pace. Okay. Um, everyone's working on story to one extent or another, but I felt like those were things that, and particularly like shaping character psychology that I just really was attracted to. Yeah. Cool. So instead of pursuing camera, um, I decided to go into editorial and I did not want to go to Los Angeles. Uh, I wanted to go back to London, which is still my favorite city in the world. Um, and I had some early mentors like Tom Rolfe, who passed away a few years ago, who's done more famous movies than I've had hot dinners, right? <laughs> yeah. He did Taxi Driver in New York, New York with Scorsese. He got the Oscar for the right stuff. Yeah, he's um, one of the most famous editors like ever. <laughs> and, a, and a great guy. And, and by the way, happy to like talk shit about anybody's movie. It's amazing, right? <laughs> and, anyone who talks to him about the right stuff, the first thing he's like, it's a half an hour too long. We should have cut it down. <laughs> and it's like, run it. Like, yeah. Um, uh, Carol Littleton was another like huge figure who was much nicer to me than she had to be. And finally, um, I sent her Carol an email when I decided to move to Los Angeles and her response was, if you're going to get work, it's best to live close to the factory. So <laughs> it just, it became this, like I was going back and forth and it was just untenable. So I went yeah. to Los Angeles and I moved there in my 95 Toyota Tercel. I slept on the floor of the closet of my friend's studio apartment in those <laughs> And I remember laying there, I had this futon mattress that like went up the walls. It was like, I was a hot dog like laying in there. And I was like, I made it, Hollywood. <laughs> um, and I worked, I got a job the eighth day I was in LA and I've worked every day that I've said yes to since then. Wow, that's wow. awesome. For better or worse. It, yeah. Moments where it was awesome and moments that I regret, like maybe I should have taken more time off. Um, but that's sort of what I had to do to get there and to be available for people to start recommending. Yeah. Right. So how did you mostly get all the editing jobs? Was it people recommending word of mouth? Uh, did you have any kind of, is there any kind of representation involved in being an editor? Yes. They're most, I mean, the answer is both. Yes. Okay. Both. Um, so when I started out, I mean, there's nothing for them to represent, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I've been, I absolutely love my agents, uh, innovative artists. I've been there for, Good Lord, more than a decade now. Yeah. Um, it's been a long time. Uh, but, you know, they have to have something to sell. Right. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. Right. It's kind of pointless. And occasionally students will ask me, like, do I need to worry about this? And I was like, what, if you had them, what would they do? Right. Yeah. But once you start getting one notable credit, something people don't tell you is that oftentimes the second credit is the hardest one to get. Yeah. Um, but when you have one that people recognize, then agents start to get involved and they're amazing because they put you in the room with all sorts of people that you don't know and would not have met otherwise. Yeah. Um, so yes, you most certainly do need it to create opportunities for yourself, but not right at the beginning. Okay. Cool. That makes sense. So 
process-wise, is there a difference between editing a show like Glee or Star Trek Discovery or Sleepy Hollow versus editing a film? Okay, so I'll take that in two parts, right? So sure. yeah. the first slide that I think is really important is that there is a difference on a series than on a feature, right? Yeah. And it's just the nature of the format. And I say feature now, which would also include a Netflix feature, not necessarily right. or whatever else, right? right? Because on a feature, there's a couple of things going on. The first is you don't really know what you have till it comes out. Yeah, hmm. that's great. On a series, when episodes are coming out weekly, you have feet like you have a mandate from the audience. Right, right. Um, so it's a different um, feedback loop, which means it's a different political thing. Right. Yeah, sure. Um, I've certainly been on shows where the showrunners became powerful enough to say, like, "Don't tell me what to do. It's my show, and the public loves it. So I'm going to do my thing now." Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I've been on situations where that worked and did not work. Um, <laughs> the, the biggest difference from my job is that on a feature, I would be working with one director the whole way through, and chances are that director was attached to the movie long before I was, right? Right, right. But on a series, I may have done 15 episodes, and this director's done one. Yeah. So part of my responsibility as editor is to help the director fit into what the show is over months or years okay. right and it's a it's a tone they didn't set or design yeah. mostly right mm -hmm. so it's a very different job because in a series you're more a steward of the show's tone than um always trying to figure out now in this last year i did two pilots that's a little bit of a hybrid of the two because you're figuring sure. out what the show is right um, there isn't anyone else involved and the director probably has been involved right yeah. from the um, but even still, there are different phases and ultimately, you know, people sometimes ask me like, why did you really focus on series and less on features? And the, the easiest answer I can give is on a series, I finish with the showrunner who's typically the head of the writer's room. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In other words, I finish with the writer, not with the director, mm -hmm. right? That works for me personality wise. And because again, like a lot of the things that I care about are the things that writers care about first and foremost. And yeah. so that has been a very comfortable fit for me, but it's yeah. a very different, the format means that there are different power structures. Yeah. That makes sense. Is editing a musical show a lot different than a non-musical series? Okay. So yeah, I'm so glad you asked me this because people, <laughs> since the beginning, people would come up to us at parties so does someone cut the show and then someone else cuts the dance numbers? And we were like, oh, like we do the whole thing. Yeah. yeah. So is it different? Yes, but honestly, it's more the same than different. Right? Yeah. It's still more about, do I believe what the actors are saying? Right. Do I understand what the characters want? Do I understand why they can't have it? Do I understand what they're willing to do to get it? Like those things, whether it's in an action sequence with space cruisers or, you know, a dance number, you're still trying to follow those motivations. Yeah. Now, yes, of course, there are a little bit different aesthetic rules. For example, on Glee, um, those dance numbers, I would break all kinds of editing rules. I mean, all of us did, right? right. Things you're not supposed to do. Wide, tight, wide. That's not supposed to work because it's so bumpy, but it has a hell of a lot of energy, mm -hmm. right? So sometimes you're just trying to goose energy of performance and you can do things visually that would not work 
on even something outlandish like Sleepy Hollow or Star yeah. Trek. It's bigger than life. Yeah. Different goals, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, there are technical differences and that's part of the fun of going to all those different shows. Yeah. But you, I, I always start from the same place. Like mm-hmm. if I don't believe what the actors are saying, it's all just window dressing anyway. Right. So I spend the vast majority of my time on my first cut building nuance of performance and then figuring out how to make the whole thing work together. So how do your contracts normally work? Are you on a show for a whole season or are you just get a couple episodes? How much, you know, do you really take on as an editor um, on a series? Yeah. So, I mean, it can change. Typically you're going to contract for uh, the series, but the thing to understand is on most series, there's a three editor rotation, right? So if I'm doing, I might be doing one, four, seven, and 10, someone else is doing two, five, and eight, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Just because of the schedule, right? Because of the schedule. So typically, again, now there are exceptions to all of this, but you know, if you're shooting eight days for a one hour episode, it's taking much, much longer than that to cut the show together, yeah. but production's right. already on the next episode on day nine, right? Right. So it would be almost impossible for one person to keep up with all of it. It yeah. is being done in the current streaming model, but it's still relatively rare, even when yeah. you're not on an air date. Um, so typically there are three teams working together and contractually, I probably am going to be asked on for the whole season, mm-hmm. right? Um, Star Trek is a great example of when that's not true. Right. Mm-hmm. There were some uh, shutdowns and some delays. So I had a relationship with the producer that went back to Sleepy Hollow and she said, look, can you just do one episode so the regular team can leapfrog ahead? And they'll you just help them out. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I was kind of in this weird isolated pocket where I was just there to do the one. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting, too, because you're speaking to the difference between features and series. There are three editorial teams who have to all make the same show. Yeah. Right. A viewer can't feel that they're bumping between episodes. <laughs> um, so that's another challenge just not there on a feature, right? There's mm-hmm. one team and it's one block of, of film from beginning to end. Interesting. Um, for Have you ever been in a situation where like they have to do research, reshoots and how does that work with editing? Yeah, I have. Um, in fact, I'm in it right now. <laughs> um, so the thing is that there, there are shows that just, there's no time to do reshoots. I've yeah. been where it's right. like, you have to make it work, which is right. excellent training ground as an editor. It's like, this is what you have, make yeah. it work, right? Yeah. Um, there, there are shows where there's time to do reshoots. There are shows where there's not. But the thing about my role in reshoots is mostly to say, this is what could be closer to what we all talked about wanting mm-hmm. if we had the following pieces. I certainly don't have the power to dictate terms, right? I'm right. not going to tell sure. the director to direct. I don't get to tell the studio they have to spend money. Mm-hmm. But what it, it is crucial is for the people that do make those decisions for me to help them understand this is where we are. Yeah. This is where we could get if we had X. Okay. You tell me if you think it's worth spending that amount of money. I mean, I was on a show, Code Black, where they just rebuilt a car crash in the parking lot at Disney, like on two days notice. It was amazing. I would, <laughs> yeah. being on Disney is really fun because you can just walk over to the stage and walk back. Yeah. Uh, 
extra exciting for me because we shot on the same stage that Mary Poppins shot on. So what? the whole time to be, I was like, I'm a professional and nothing rattles me. And the whole time I'm like, oh my God, Mary Poppins. <laughs> 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I was like nerding out. Oh um, it was amazing. It was amazing. Um, but that stuff, it, it was a very clear, like, this is what we have. And if you yeah. want what you're saying, we have to reshoot it. And something that I think is important for people listening who might be just starting coming up the ranks because an editorial, you're probably going to start as an assistant and then an editor is on that day, it's important to understand what people on the other side of that conversation have to go through and the pressures they're under. Yeah. Right? You're asking for a lot of money from the studio. Yeah. So you better be damn sure you don't have it. Right. Mm -hmm. There's no miscommunication about what anyone wanted. So on that day, my assistant who I love Rocky, I was like, look, we have to go through every single frame of film that we have and present yeah. like, this is everything we have of this moment. If you're not happy with this, we have to talk about spending money to reshoot. Yeah. Which is what we did. And like, I knew we didn't have it, but you have to show that's right. some part of your responsibilities. The editor is just to clarify what the problem is. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So yes, that's a role in reshooting that I would have is making sure everyone is crystal clear about what we do, do and don't have yeah, and what getting additional material will do for you, mm -hmm. right? If you're going to spend all this money and, and frankly, all the political capital to get the money released, yeah, right, right. you're going to make the show that much better because if not, everyone looks bad and that's yeah. all that's, right? Right. Interesting. Yeah, you have to be just really, really thorough, I guess. Because oh, yeah. you're right, you're call you have to call back the actors, right? That right there is a ton of money. All the crew, the set time, like, uh, yeah. Everything, yeah. So is it harder? You mentioned that you're a Star Trek fan and, and got to edit one episode. Is it harder to, to walk into something that you're familiar with and that you love to edit? Or is that more like, ooh, I've, I get to put my <laughs> you know fingerprints on this? Is it... Is it more challenging or is it easier? It does help to really be a fan beforehand. Here's a specific example of that. So the episode that I did, 408, there's a long poker sequence, right? I won't go into all the backstory. And when I was ramping up for the episode, you know, I looked at Rounders, I looked at Casino Royale, but yeah. then I also looked at the original series from the 60s and I had forgotten how goofy it is. Super goofy, yeah. And it's not just the camp, like there's that, but the show is deliberately playful, right? Yeah. And they really want you to be having fun. So that's the way uh, I played it. And the music choices in that sequence were about fun and kind of goofiness. And I was putting it in like, I'm either going to get fired tomorrow or they're going to think I'm a genius. Yeah. Um, and the showrunner, Michelle, came on and was like, I love this music choice, right? So... It was a way to do something kind of unexpected because I was, I mean, it's not like I had every episode of the original Star Trek on, on command and memory, but I would look at it and thought like, oh, that's something that I don't see a lot that actually is really fun mm -hmm. and it worked. So I don't know. I mean, I haven't been in the position to work on shows except for Star Trek and In Treatment where I, like, I was a fan of the show long before it ever entered my mind that I right. would work on the show. And so... You have to serve what the show has been up to that point, right? Yeah. Um, but you also have to not be intimidated by history. Like you still have yeah. to have an opinion and do your thing. And sure. if you're yeah. doing a disservice to the show, that's what they hired you for is to have right. a point to do, right? Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's kind of fun. In Treatment was like that too, where I was like, oh my God, it's In Treatment, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, I watched it ages ago. 
Fantastic. Yeah, now you get to say you're part of the Star Trek like catalog or universe of. <laughs> Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, yeah. one of the EPs, Tunde, uh, he's like the directing EP on Discovery. When he met me, you know, the producer wanted to hire me, and he's like, "I'd like to meet him beforehand." Mm -hmm. And he actually said to me, "Like, welcome to the Star Trek universe. It's like oh. a thing. That, like, you're passing through this bit of pop culture history. That's yeah, that, you know, um, it was really fun. It's different than like being on Glee, where you're watching it become pop culture as right. it's happening." It's a different game to walk into like, I watched Next Generation when I was like 13. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you also have done some teaching. Um, mm -hmm. Can you tell us about what kind of drew you to that? And like, what, how that, does that help your career? Does it just like rewarding to be able to help kind of the next generation of people in film and TV? Yeah, I mean, look, so it, what drew me to it is a couple of things, you know, besides just like vanity and ego or whatever. But, um, <laughs> First of all, again, like we talked about a few people earlier, Tom Rolfe and Carol Littleton, like mm -hmm. you know, they didn't formally teach me, but they did not need to be nice to me. They're right. like this powerful people yeah. and I was nobody, right? And they still took the time to invite me to their house for lunch and take me out and tell me what's what and like, look for this and look for that. I never got to work with either of them, unfortunately, but they sort of mentored me at the beginning of like, you're going to be fine. And that was hugely influential to me. Like, oh, it's going to be fine. Mm -hmm. Right? Because they're making enormous movies and they seem to think I'm okay. So I guess I'll be okay. And I had yeah. to sort of find my way after that. And I, I do think there's a moral imperative to do that for other people coming into the industry. The other thing is, there's a strong instinct to right the wrongs that happen to you, right? Because <laughs> I was like, there's a few things you really should know right from the beginning. Yes. Don't say this, make sure you do that. And I can save you a lot of heartache if someone says that at the beginning. That's yeah. very satisfactory. Yeah. But I think also, you know, it's a weird thing because sometimes more than anything, what people need when they're entering any intimidating industry, right? Mm -hmm. Hollywood being one of them. If you're not from the business, if you're not from Los Angeles, you don't know what it is. You just want to get involved, right? Yeah. Sometimes you just need someone to give you permission. Like, mm -hmm. yeah. and, and like, oh, I guess if they think I can do it, I can do it. Yeah. And I got that from Carol and Tom. And so I felt like that was important to pass on as well, right? So sometimes I'm teaching you know, specifics, I mean, down to sometimes I'm teaching specifics of equipment, but mostly I try to teach things like the social aspects of the editing room, the right. political aspects, the things that people don't explain to you until yeah. tonight. Um, I try to say like, look, and to some of that stuff, it's like touching a hot stove. Like people can tell you don't do it all you want, but you got to do it once and then you right. never do it. <laughs> so the satisfaction comes from honestly paying back what they yeah. did, right? And it's really fun. I mean, just a few months ago, I got a text from a student I hadn't seen in ages that said, I have a credit on the new Spider-Man movie oh, and I don't cool. think I would have gotten it without your class. So thank you. Like, that's very gratifying. Yeah, right? that's, that's awesome. awesome. My current assistant editor is a former student oh, and cool. she's amazing. Uh, in fact, I probably wouldn't even have her for that much longer because now I've introduced her to other producers that are like, you can't do it without her. Um, uh, and, and it's very satisfactory to be able to nurture new careers yeah particularly for people who might have spent years being intimidated or mm -hmm. or doubting whether or not they should do it like i did frankly yeah. right 
Um, I can, if I can jump them to the head of that line, I certainly will, especially if they put everything they have into the work, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I, mean, yeah. I think something that's important, because I know your audience is a lot of sort of new to the industry and something that mm-hmm. I think is really important to understand when you're trying to make connections is when you ask someone to vouch for you, hey, can you introduce me to so-and-so? Or can you get me on this show? Or can you do whatever? You have to understand that you're asking them to take a huge risk. Oh, yeah. And I don't think people see that all the time. It's like, well, why wouldn't they help me? And it's like, because you're a liability. Right. First thing you have to do is show them that if they do that for you, you're not going to embarrass them. Mm -hmm. Right. That's one of the most important things I think people who are just starting out need to be constantly aware of. Um, There's a reciprocity there. Yeah. You mentioned working with an assistant for a while. How does that work for the editing room? Do you have a team you normally work with or is it sort of just sort of whoever's on the job is who you get to work with or does it sort of, is there a pattern or not really? Yeah. So here's how it works typically, although there are always exceptions, right? So when I come onto a show, I get to bring the assistant of my choice with me most of the time. An exception to that, we keep coming back to this. An exception to that would be Star Trek. I'm there for one episode, the assistant's already in place, and I got lucky because my assistant, Sarah, was fantastic. In which case, I just kind of got assigned the assistant. We worked together for 10 or 11 weeks, it was over. Um, But most of the time, I get to bring the assistant I wanna bring. And consistency is hugely important, right? because there's so much to that relationship besides just the job description. It's not just about whether or not you can do the job. It's whether or not I want to spend 14 hours a day with you. Yes. I say this to students all the time. Do I want to be in a small, probably hot room with you yeah. like 12 hours a day and not want to murder you at the end of it? That's <laughs> part of the consideration of the job. It is a social job, right? Yeah. Um, and then do I you know, can I rely on you to do something without me checking up on you all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Something that I really, especially like a more formal, I'm teaching film students how to go into editorial is to say to them, like, if you're an assistant and the editor asks you to do something, I'm not asking you because I want you to do it. I'm asking you because I don't even want to think about that again. Mm -hmm. You come tell me when it's done. I shouldn't have to ask you, right? Because I have 10 other things I have to think about. Mm -hmm. When you have that kind of working relationship, and this is going to be true in any business, there's an X factor that makes it worth far more than what's written down on paper. Right. Right. So I, I try to have consistency, but it just won't always be that way because sometimes the schedules don't match up. Yeah. Right? Um, it might be that, you know, my assistant and I are on one show together and then I take time off and then they go on to a different show. And by the time I'm ready to go, they're caught up. I'm lucky right now that this pilot I did last year, my assistant went on to do another show that I did not. And then we're going to meet back up for the series in June. So it's like the best of everything. Yeah. And she actually did both pilots uh, with me last year. Um, It can be something I also try to say specifically about editorial is you're not my personal assistant. Like you're the assistant editor, right? That means you have your own set of job responsibilities that I need you to be in charge of. And I need you to behave like someone who's in charge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like if you see a train coming and you know that I don't come into my office, like yeah. I don't think this is going to get done in the kind of time we're talking about. Yeah. And that can be very intimidating. I think sometimes for people just coming into editorial. Yep. But I think it's hugely important. First of all, I value that in an assistant, but also to just get respect, right? Mm-hmm. You have to be seen as 
thinking about something bigger than just serving whatever you're being asked to do. Do you have any moments in your career that are like a favorite moment where like, I can't believe this is my job and what I get to do every day or any moments where like, I can't believe this is my job right now. <laughs> oh, you mean like moments of indignity? And then yeah. moments of indignity. <laughs> I'll have to renew, remove some of the names. The indignity. I, mean, yes. <laughs> I will. Some, and again, this is like me at my most snarky. It's not intended <laughs> to be like actual life advisor, but there are moments when I've definitely looked at people and been like, we spent a lot of time talking about hair, like a lot of time talking about hair. Like, we were like educated adults. This is extreme, right? But whatever, in the moment, it's important. Amazing moments. Yeah, I've had a few. Honestly, some of them were in the least glamorous situations. Yeah. I made a documentary years ago about a guy who got 400 offers to go to university to play football and basketball and oh. said no to all of them because he wanted to stay home. Yeah. And I caught up with him like 20 years later, made this documentary, it went to a local festival and we won best picture. It was super cool, right? It was amazing. Yeah. And like, he was there, a bunch of the people that he had talked about, he ended up coming up, some of them came up from Atlanta. It was amazing. Hundreds of people there, it was great. And we thought it was over. And the festival director said, so we have one more award this year. I'm not even going to be able to get through this without being emotional okay. uh, that we want to do before we leave. And she holds up the statue and she said, it's for Wilmington's favorite son. Thank you for not leaving. Oh my gosh. And it was amazing. Right. Yeah. Not only for him, but it's like everyone in that room loved him, but didn't necessarily know how to say it. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. And suddenly they had a moment. They were all together in a room. He was in the front. And like, they all got to say what they kind of all felt about him. Oh, yeah. That one stuck. And that was before I went to LA or anything else. Yeah. Like that, that's certainly one of my career highlights. Some of the most fun I ever had was, you know, when we were working on Glee, we found out there's a bar in West Hollywood called the Silver Spoon. And it's, it's a restaurant, but there's a bar in the back. So you walk in and you can get seated or you can go to the bar in the back. And... You know, West Hollywood is, Hollywood is traditionally a very gay neighborhood. And especially at the time, that show was confronting those issues on network television in a way that was not being done. So we found out that they were watching the show live in that bar. I think it was on Tuesday nights at that point. Oh my gosh. And so we all started going, we just snuck in the back. <laughs> so you start to see, like you get to watch strangers react to what you did. Like, is this working or is it not working? And Eventually, they sort of figured out who we were and the day was <laughs> But like getting laughs in a room full of total strangers who don't know how hard you worked on that is incredibly satisfying. That's so cool. That's cool. Getting tears, also very satisfying. Yeah. Right? And that was just really fun to just be kind of in the audience for it. You know, there are moments too where you're aware that you're showing stuff that's never been on TV before or that you are actually breaking ground. Yeah. And that's not just my moment. Obviously, that's everyone's moment when that comes together. But that kind of thing is really interesting to me. I, I mean, you know, I have colleagues who do not want to work on the first season of a show. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Complicated. Like, it's a bloodbath. People are getting fired all the time. You're just trying to figure out what it is. And after that, you kind of like, this is what the show is going to be. And then you go on and on and on. Right? Sure. Yeah. I love season one where nobody really knows what it is. And you're like, is this the show we really set out to make? Because that's yeah. not what we were talking about last week, but I guess this is where we are now. Um, 
so that stuff is really exciting, but it's particularly exciting when you feel like you're kind of breaking new ground. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, John, I have one more question for you before we move on and talk about the movie. What advice do you have for people who want to get either into editing or just the entertainment business in general? Okay, so, well, here's the first thing I'll say all the, because especially in the current state of things, for anyone who's like, I don't know, I'm not in yet, I might not get in. They cannot get enough people to make all this content. Yeah. There's never been this much production in the history of Hollywood, right? Yeah. So, first of all, it's like all hands on deck. You're going to be fine, right? <laughs> um, I know that people, and I, I say this to students all the time, where they're like intimidated about going or... I think there's this assumption that everyone in the industry is like an expert that you're competing with. Totally not true. But <laughs> uh, so the advice I would give, first of all, is don't be intimidated. Yeah. Um, but there are real concerns that people don't talk about. So oftentimes I think people's concern is, will I get work? Right. What if I move to LA and nothing happens and I'm broke? You're going to get work. It's going to be fine. They, literally, it's like, Every, get in here. Like if you know <laughs> so much content, just get in here. The real question is, how will I manage the enormous amount of work that's about to be put on my plate? Yeah. Right. You're going to work. I mean, I worked a hundred hours a week on some shows, mm -hmm. right? Um, often after they told you, you weren't going to work a hundred hours that week. It's a year. So I think the advice would be, Go ahead and get started. You're going to be fine. Trust me. Um, once you're there, it will mostly work. Obviously, different career paths have different, um, what am I trying to say, rates of success, right? Um, but even from the editorial perspective, every time a series goes, there's three teams. Every time a movie yeah. goes, there's only one. Series being on the ascendance, they need more and more and more teams all the time. There's more and more opportunities to get started, right? But trying to figure out how to set a boundary about what you are or are not willing to do is very hard. I mean, it could be about the project you're working on. It could be about the people you're working with. It could be about the stage of life you're in. I mean, I actually caught up with a buddy that I worked with years ago and he's on like big fancy movies now. But even on those shows, he was like, I don't think I could do that now. Yeah. I don't even physically work like that anymore. Right. Right. That's a, at a different era of life, you just make different choices. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and you won't always know what those are until you work through them. But being able to take a realistic look at what you're gaining and what you're giving up to move up is an important skill to have. It might be that it is worth the sacrifice. I am willing to do anything necessary to make this opportunity happen you might have to have a very serious conversation with your family or your spouse or whatever. Like, look, I'm not going to be home a lot for the next eight months. Mm -hmm. And you work with that and, and creating a situation where people can really talk about that. I mean, I met this one assistant, this was years ago. I met her at Sundance and she had been on like all those huge Michael Bay movies in the nineties, like Pearl Harbor. And like our awesome. She said, every time she signed on to one of those movies, her friends threw her a going away party. Oh. <laughs> she was so busy because she was like I'm, we're not going to see you for nine months yeah. you can live across town but like you're not even going to answer the phone and they were right it was just yeah. that's what those movies took to make right Right. Um, everyone there are shows like that in town everyone knows what they're going to be the worst is when you don't know what you're getting into yeah start. sure but the advice is that it's like don't be intimidated 
but but you do have concerns that you really need to start thinking about and you won't get it right right away. Mm-hmm. The other is nearly everyone who starts out is going to be asked to do a job that's beneath them. Yeah. Right. Like everybody, whatever it is, right. Whether you're in craft services, whether you're the, the PA getting lunch orders, what you're doing, whatever. The mistake I see people make is that they think that everyone doesn't know that or they're like, but I'm really this, that, and the other thing. And I'm like, look, everyone knows that you're overqualified for that job. That's not what they're looking at. Right. Yeah. That is, are you reliable? Do you listen to what I say? Do I have to ask you three times if you did it? Because if I do, you're never getting beyond that first level. Right. Or you're going to move up really fast. The most cold-blooded example of that I've heard recently is a colleague I have a lot of respect for that someone new to the industry uh, got a lunch order wrong and got yelled at. And he called her and said, what should I do? And her first question was, did you get the order wrong? And he was like, yeah. And she's like, well, that's what happens. And that might sound unreasonable from the outside, but it's the next thing she said to him that I think is so useful. She said, if they can't trust you with that, how can they trust you that you took the right notes on a phone call where millions of dollars are being talked about? Yeah. Right, right. You know that you get details right. Mm-hmm. It's not about the lunch order, right? Whatever job you have, trust me, the people around you are noticing the quality that you do it at. Yeah. Right? No matter how menial no matter how overqualified you are. And if you prove that you are doing it well, you won't have to do it for very long. Let's get to our featured film. Um, Today we're discussing the 1997 crime drama Hanabi or Fireworks. It was written and directed by Takeshi Kitano and stars Takeshi Kitano, Kayoko Kishimoto, and Ren Osuji. It was nominated and won for a lot of categories at the 1999 Japanese Academy Awards, including winning Best Film. So Ben is going to give us a quick breakdown of the plot, and then we will get into it. Yeah, so this... This movie follows uh, Nishi, who is a police detective, um, but he is retired after he uh, has some emotionally devastating stuff happen in his life. Uh, his only child died uh, just previously, and his wife is currently in the hospital um, and then released, but dealing with leukemia, very serious stuff. So he actually leaves the force because uh, his colleague Horibe um, is shot and paralyzed during a uh, uh, during a stakeout, um, and a couple of their other colleagues get killed, um, and so he he is recover he is also re- uh, recovering, but he is uh, wheelchair bound, um, and then he goes on to start coping with his life after his wife and daughter leave, um, and so he starts taking up art as a means to to coping with that. Um, in the meantime, uh, Nishi, sorry, that's our cat screaming again. Um, so Nishi is. Um, you know, has to actually take a, a money loan out from the mob in order from uh, from the yakuza in order to uh, pay for some healthcare for his wife, and then he ends up uh, robbing a bank to pay them back, and then they they ask for uh, for interest on that, and uh, stuff happens. So I don't want to give too much away, <laughs> but John, you chose this film first to watch. You chose Fireworks. Why did you choose this film? Okay, so um, there's a couple of reasons. Uh, it's easily one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, my buddy Harry Oxnard introduced me to it in the 99, was probably yeah. the first time I saw this movie. Yeah. One of the very few movies that like, we're going on more than two decades. And every time I see it, I'm like, yep, it's every bit as good as I remember. It's actually even better than I remember. Yeah. yeah. 
But I mean, there's a lot of things that I love about it, which hopefully we'll have time to talk about. Yeah, but again, well. you know, looking at the breakdown for your show and that the the majority of the audience are people who are maybe not already ensconced in the film business. Right. That's a movie you could make on a phone with your friends. Yeah. Right. Like everything about it in terms of its effect on you is just exquisite craftsmanship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mostly locations, not a lot of expensive lighting, not a ton of effect. Like it feels like a much bigger, more expensive movie because it's so elegantly made. Yeah. Right. Um, but it's a movie that you could make on an iPhone. Yeah. And it would have more or less the same effect. So I feel like, you know, there were other movies I could talk about that are near and dear to my heart, right? The sure. Fly. But yeah. that's not a, like, you need a team of guys and there's like a thing with a ton of money. And like, that's a hard movie to make when you're starting yeah. out. But Hanabi is one that you could make. I mean, you could make that movie over a summer with your buddies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I thought this movie was brilliant. Um, what really stood out to me, and I'm curious to hear your professional editing, you know, opinion of it. But something that really, really struck out is there's these long, slow character moments that are so focused and so slow, and then all of a sudden you get a burst of very fast action, like very violent, very quick, and then it's back to the slow. And I thought that was such an interesting direction, interesting editing. I was wondering what you thought of that style. Yeah, I mean, so one of the many things I like about the movie is that when the violence happens, it's funny because when you read the description of the movie, it sounds depressing and schlocky, right? Yeah. right. Not, not at all. But no. when people tell you about the movie, you're like, why would I want to see that movie? <laughs> so a lot of what Katano does in terms of the blocking and his actual physical motions is yeah. pretty stylized. It's like Charles Bronson stuff in there, right? Yes, <laughs> yes. But the filmmaking doesn't do that. It has these very long meditative moments. Right. And the combination of those two things, first of all, it's poignant as opposed to just exhilarating, right? right? Also, my experience of violence is that is how it happens. It happens very fast. You yeah. don't really know what's going on. To what's, you're like, where, how did we get there? Like, mm-hmm. it's over really before you know what's happening most right. of the time. And this movie, it's sort of in the middle. I mean, again, it's he's doing cool gangster shit in there, but like, it it takes that stance where there isn't this long, slow buildup to everything. Yeah. Um, The long and slow parts are about people learning things that they'll make decisions that change the rest of their lives based on that. So they spend a long time on that stuff. Yeah. Um, It's also just full of so many just great ideas. Like in terms of pure filmmaking, you don't have any money, you're working on a phone or whatever, right? Yeah. The thing about them losing their child, no one talks about it in the movie, Mm-mm. right? It's just, he comes home, there's a tricycle in the way to the elevator, yeah. he has to before he gets in, right? It's, it's just about knowing what to put there to make it poignant. It's not right. about how much it costs. You could get right. that, so, right? Um, the moments between them as a couple uh, are incredible because you think yeah. they're supposed to be sad and then they're funny, mm-hmm. which is how moments with people in your life, in your life that you know you may not have around much longer, that's exactly how they go. Yeah. One part I really enjoyed is after he got the painting supplies, um, it was, oh, 
Horibe got the painting supplies. That moment where he comes across like the flowers and you just see like his inspiration open up and it's like, here's a flower, here's the painting. And I thought that was a really cool, like really well done scene that just shows you kind of like, cause he had just tried to commit suicide. He was very depressed. He didn't know what he was going to do. And it's like this whole inspiration opened up for him where he's like, I'm going to become a painter. And then it's like, Oh, here's what I'm going to paint. It's kind of like, yeah, yeah that was really well done. In terms of characters, I have to say my favorite character is the guy who owns the junkyard. <laughs> I love that guy um, because like Nietzsche walks in and, and he's planning his heist and he sees the, uh, the police lights mm-hmm. in the junkyard and the junkyard guy comes over and he's like, hey, you know, how much for those? And he's like, what are you what are you going to do with them? He's like, I'm going to go rob a bank. And the junkyard guy is like, no, you can have them for free. That's awesome. <laughs> you know, like, I loved that character and he's so ridiculous. But I, I, I just thought that was really cool. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have like a long love for Asian cinema of all kinds. And it's certainly my sort of home base. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the thing that sort of pushed me towards making movies a lot in the first place. One of the many things I love about it, this movie typifies, which is just because you're in a genre, even just because you're in a tone, you can still just do other stuff. Yeah. Sure. full of physical comedy. Yeah. Like just sight gags. It's so yeah. It does not match a movie about a guy who borrowed money from the mob and he's on the yeah. run and has leukemia. And he's like, well, let's just stop and do a joke. And the, the junkyard owner is a big part of that, right? Yes. Yes. Um, and they'll just stop and do physical comedy. I mean, Takeshi Kitano, he later made a movie, uh, Zatoichi, The Blind Swordsman. And for anyone, some of you listening may know that series, but that series is a decades-long series. It would be, it's like as Bond is to England and the U.S., cool. Zatoichi, The Swordsman, is to Japan, right? Played by many different actors and many different people. So he did one of those movies. So the Blind Swordsman, who's like cutting body parts off, and then later in the movie, they just like do a dance number. <laughs> it totally works. There's just this incredible freedom to a lot of Asian cinema that is really exhilarating. I mean, it's yeah. the way the American model of making movies just doesn't allow for that oftentimes. Right. And in many different countries in Asia, it does. And it's really fun to watch it's actually, I, I wonder often if it's more fun to watch as an outsider. Yeah. And I've had some conversations about that, but I, I yeah, the junkyard owner is amazing because he's just kind of there to do jokes and like hit people on the head with things. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Lead them in this really crass way. Yes. Yeah. It's amazing. The Yakuza part, I, I would forget like that he was in debt to them because there's so many, so many beautiful moments where he's with his wife on that sort of last trip they take together. I was like, oh yeah, he robbed a bank. I forgot about that because I'm so wrapped up in this beach scene with the kite. Like it's, it's interesting how, how little of it's really about the gangster part yes. of the description. That is absolutely, <laughs> that's not the A plot no. of the movie. I that's mean, right. that, that's backstory yeah. for sure. But the A plot is really about him like sort of figuring stuff out, you know, yeah, with his wife and having this relationship and dealing with all this tragedy. Right. And I mean, there are, are a lot of sad characters in this movie who are dealing with some very awful stuff. Um, but I wouldn't say the movie itself is sad. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't classify it as a sad movie. I wouldn't classify it as a gangster movie or a cop movie. I think this is just a straight up drama with those, so a lot of those elements thrown in. What do you guys think? Agree. I mean, it's a character study. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's about watching him 
come to terms with it. I mean, even when they're on the vacation, it's like one of my favorite moments in the movie where he sets up this camera. He and his yes, wife are just, I love that. Yeah. He tries to take his arm and he pulls away. Mm-hmm. And he's like, why would you do that? Like, yeah. Like you were right there with this like elegant moment and you kind of just blew it, man. Yeah. And later on when he puts his arm around her, it's devastating. Like, especially yeah. from a woman's perspective where overt affection is not part of culture. Right. So you're watching him in these micro increments change based yeah. on what he has to learn to accept. There's all this dramatic gangster stuff going on around him. I know. Not at all what the movie's interested in. Right. You know, the, the willingness to just stop and look at a small moment or a gag, like mm-hmm. the temple bell thing. Right. Yes. Those are the things that people remember about road trips with loved ones, yeah. about the end of something. And the movie does that. So you feel that you're watching them with all these other things swirling around them, which yeah. is very satisfactory. Yeah. One of the fun things about Takeshi Kitano is like, he's also a baseball announcer. He's also a stand-up comic. Right. He was the host of Most Extreme Elimination Challenge, which is like a game show on Japanese. Oh, like, I loved that show when I was younger. Everybody loves that show, yeah. right? Yeah. And he's like doing stand-up comedy. And then I'm also going to make these like beautifully elegant yeah. movies about the end of your marriage. Like that kind of freedom for any creative person in the film industry in America is very hard to get. Yeah. Did you guys have a favorite scene in the film? I think mine is the paint, like the initial scene with the painting also this is kind of a spoiler but the scene at the very end where he splashes the red paint i thought that was really well done editing and like sound wise i think the very end of this movie is devastating yeah and i don't want to spoil it because i want people to watch this Mm -hmm. movie but i do we have to at least mention it that that is a shocking ending yeah it it is but it also i don't know they don't i guess because they don't show it it's it's not like right. It's just implied, but yeah, it is not. I guess I didn't expect it. Yeah, I was strip shocked. Mm-hmm. So, uh, did you have a favorite scene in the in the film, John? Actually, there's one that I sort of think of first whenever I think of that movie, which is when they're setting off fireworks in the field at night. Yes. Yeah. Again, it's a sight gag <laughs> and a beautifully constructed one. I mean, when he runs over, I think you know it's going to explode in his face. Oh right? yeah. Like, yeah, you absolutely know. And it's like this Buster Keaton pratfall. Yeah. <laughs> then you go to his wife and she laughs. And yeah. it's such a, be- it's the kind of thing as an editor, you're looking through hours of film to find. Yeah. yeah. She knew there's something about her laugh where it's like, he always does stuff like that. He doesn't yeah. think, like you can feel the weight of years of their relationship in the way that she laughs and looks down. It's perfect. And you think that's what you're doing. And then there's this moment where she's kind of fascinated by fireworks that get set off later on. And then there's a pop and it transitions to the painting of fireworks. Yeah. Any one of those moments would have made the scene great. And it has like five of them. And you run through so many different emotions in that scene. Mm -hmm. And again, it's pretty simple. It's like, there's a white on him. There's not particularly lit. Like there's the firework shot of her shot of her looking up shot of the painting it's just beautifully executed and you get these really complex effects. I mean, you were talking about the scene where Haribe looks at the flowers and he's about to think, I use that scene to teach editing. Yeah. Because you absolutely understand what he's going through. Mm-hmm. You know exactly what he's thinking. You even know when he's stuck. Yeah. The movie sets you up like you see him, he looks at a flower and it becomes a painting you could make that flower out of. Oh, I get it. He's looking at it and imagining what he could paint. And then he does it a couple of times and then he looks at a flower and it cuts to just a blank piece of paper. Yeah. Back to him. He doesn't, he doesn't have it, right? Yeah. 
you're so engaged in his inner life and you're just just locked off shots of a couple of things. Mm-hmm. But the fireworks one, that moment when it's a dud and then it goes off in his face is <laughs> my favorite. <laughs> Did you have a favorite scene? I, I think the I'm, I'm a sucker for a good heist. Um, uh-huh. I just love that stuff. And sort of what you pointed out, John, is like, you know, the, the quote unquote action parts of this movie are so brief and not what mm-hmm. the movie wants to focus on. I really still like the idea of him taking the taxi, repainting it like the cop car, you know, getting the uniform and robbing the bank. I thought that was all cool, very well done. And, and it's very small part of the film. But um, I just thought it was really cool the way they did that because um, it seemed like such an a low budget way to rob a yeah. bank. <laughs> like, you know, like what a, what a smart way to do it. I also thought, you know, anytime he had a deal with the gangsters and the Yakuza coming after him, he seemed not like ever threatened, but just mostly inconvenienced by <laughs> yes, having to deal with that these dummies <laughs> that keep on coming. He, he keeps on like beating them up or hurting them mm-hmm. and they keep coming back until uh, finally at the end, he has to take them all out. But I mean, like he really does just try to like, you know, remove the threat and move on with his day. He's not trying to like cause trouble or anything they just keep coming Mm -hmm. after him so i thought that was fascinating yeah yeah the attitude he brings whenever he fights him is just like oh god not again okay let's deal with this move on yeah (laughs) wait he just feels put upon and it's like that part of the movie is the most action movie star charles bronson thing that he does you know it's like he he has moves in there and like the chopsticks and stuff but right it's all about like i just need to get this distraction out of my right so that I can focus on my wife and mm-hmm. this trip that we're doing, right? Yeah. And you get the sense that he's almost superhuman. Like he could make this right uh, a huge action movie if he wanted to, but he just doesn't want to do that. That's not what he's right. interested. Yeah. I mean, bank robbery stuff. I love it. There's all this build up, and then it's just a security camera. I know. <laughs> and you just kind of watch him do it, and then yeah. oh, you go to the clerk's expression, and then back to him, and then to her, and then she just puts the money. It's so uneventful. Uh-huh. Then, but I love that. Yeah, it's so <laughs> so straightforward. That's right. It feels like he's just going through the motions of the thing, <laughs> right. so he can get on with the things that actually matter to him. Yeah. Right. Well, thank you for su- suggesting it. It's the first time we've seen it. And yeah. Loved it. Yeah. And it, it is on um, like the list of a thousand and one movies to see before you die. So everyone should go see it because <laughs> I don't think a lot of people know about it. Yeah. No, for sure. Yeah. We like to finish up our show today with a game that we're calling Silver Screen Cops and Robbers. We're going to see how well both of you know pop movies and gangster movies. So, John and Susan, you guys are be playing as a team. So, here are the rules. I've given each of you a list of well-known movies featuring police and criminals. You will take turns describing the movie's characters, settings, plot, and quotes to each other as quickly as you can, but you cannot use the title of the film. You will have two minutes to get your partner to get us as many as possible. If you get seven correct, John will win our prize. And Susan, what's our prize? Our prize is some Life in the Credits merchandise that we will send you. <laughs> yes. Exciting stuff. All righty. So, and we're going back and forth? Going back okay. and forth. So, yeah, as soon as you get one right, then, then the other I person. Start giving clues. Correct. Okay. Now, John, you're going to give clues first, right? Yes. And are you ready to begin? Yes. Yes. All right. On your mark, get set, go. Okay. Set in Los Angeles, Robert Nero is a criminal and Al Pacino is the cop trying to hunt him down. Heat? Yes. Okay. Um, So this is Andrea Moss and Daniel Craig. He's trying to solve a murder that took place in this house among these family members. 
It's a it's a no, it's a dragon tattoo. Uh, no, it's a kind of recent movie, and they're making a sequel for it. Uh, well, yes, yes, two points. Um, a police officer in Detroit is killed in the line of duty, but he's brought back to life by forming him into Robo-cop? a side. Yes, three points. <laughs> okay, um, this takes place at Nakatomi Plaza Christmas. Die Hard. Yes, yes four <laughs> points. Okay, um, Harrison Ford plays Dr. Richard Kimball. He famously has a beard at the beginning and then shaves it. Uh, he's on the run, um, and Tommy Lee Jones is trying to track him down. Yeah. And there's a great moment in the tunnel where he says, I didn't kill my wife. And Tommy Lee Jones says, I don't care. What's the name of this movie? Based on a TV show originally, although most people wouldn't know that. Um, there was a sequel made to it, called, which I can't say. This, there was a sequel made with Tommy Lee Jones, but not Harrison Ford. I cannot um, think of the title. Pass, yeah, keep okay, going. Pass. pass. Okay, um, a killer sets up a series of murders based on the seven deadly sins. Oh, uh, seven. Yes, Yeah. five points. Okay, um, this is a bus has to go 55 miles per hour or it explodes. Yeah. Six points, one more. The best thing about the movie is that one of the characters can do an almost infinite amount of sound effects just using his mouth. Police Academy. Yeah, seven points. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I got 15 okay. seconds. Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, law enforcement, but for children. Kindergarten cop. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Very good. You got five seconds. Okay. A small town insurance salesman pretends that his wife gets kidnapped trying to collect the insurance money and it all goes horribly wrong. It's a huge snow laden movie um, with William H. Macy, Francis McDormand. Um, It's also a TV show. Is it Fargo? Uh It is Fargo. (laughs) Excellent. You guys got eight points. Nice. I'm sorry. No, nine points. Uh, Really well done. So Susan, what do you call someone when they've been arrested, but then they... The spit. fugitive! Yeah, oh my right. god, I couldn't believe I couldn't think of that name. Oh, I was that's like, what I should have said. Like, yeah, I... Uh, okay. No, it's, it's all right. I, I should have known the title of that movie. You guys were so good at describing movies to yeah. each other. That was awesome. Well <laughs> done, job. John. You easily won. Yes. Hey, thanks. It also reveals what's memorable about uh-huh. a movie, oh, right? Because yeah. that's the thing I think of. It's like, yeah. oh, yeah. Oh, I totally think of this. I love the fugitive. Uh, mm-hmm. I can picture Harrison Ford in the hot, like in the hospital. Like, yeah, yeah. I, I always think of the tunnel scene where yeah. it's like, I didn't kill my wife. I don't care. Yeah. It's uh, such a good line. That easily could have been a bad movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But when you have great actors great. doing yeah. that scene, it yeah. suddenly is amazing, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I haven't seen that movie in ages. Although I, I still say the word hinky because he says that in Tommy Lee Jones. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Well, John, before we let you go, is there anything that you would like to plug? Yeah, you can find me on Instagram at john.l.roberts. I don't post as frequently as I would like, but when I do, it usually is about something I'm really proud of. Um, You can find me as a fiction writer online at johnnylamar.com. So it's J-O-H-N-N-E-Y-L-A-M-A-R.com. And I'm really proud of both of the shows that are coming out later this year. I think Dolores Roach will be really interesting, not something that people are accustomed to seeing streaming. So I think we're set to premiere around Halloween. Okay. Awesome. I'm really proud to work on In Treatment, uh, which is on HBO and HBO Mm -hmm. Max. I try to do things that are both fun and I hope kind of helpful on Instagram at least occasionally. Sometimes it's just about, here's the Sally Potter movie that I really love and want to rewatch. Yeah, sure. And sometimes it's that, which by the way, has its own kind of views. Yeah. 
And on the fiction writing side, it doesn't get updated very often because I work at a slow pace. But when it does, it's because I'm really proud of it. Awesome. Well, John, thank you so much for joining. This has yeah. been really great. Yeah, this is really it's fun. It's a pleasure. Life in the Credits is hosted and produced by me, Susan Swarner. And me, Ben Bloom. It's executive produced by Michelle Levin. The music is written and performed by Steve Trowbridge. You can hear more of Steve's music at TrowbridgeSounds.com. The show logo is created by Melissa Durkin. If you'd like to support Life in the Credits and get access to exclusive perks, you can do so at Patreon.com. If you'd like to follow or get a hold of us, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Life in the Credits or shoot us an email at lifeinthecredits at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. There are moments when I've definitely looked at people and been like, we spend a lot of time talking about hair. <laughs> <laughs>